Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Stuart Walker to talk about his book, Design and Spirituality, A Philosophy on Material Cultures. Stuart is Chair of Design for Sustainability at Lancaster University, where he also co-founded the Imagination Lancaster Design Research Lab. Thank you for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. Oh, anytime. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Uh, well, a little bit about my background. I, uh, I come from originally from Wales, from the industrial valleys of Wales, and... Uh, it was a very industrial valley. The valley floor was uh, was was lined in a in a huge steelworks, and lower down the valley were coal mines. So it was very much that kind of industrial valley heritage of Wales, <clears throat> which has now largely disappeared. But I worked in the steelworks uh, in my summers as a, as a as a boy, as a student, and. Uh, and then I studied mining engineering when I uh, went to university. Uh, I did my first degree and then my PhD in mining engineering. Uh, and I worked then in the oil industry for a number of years as a petroleum engineer with an oil major in uh, in Holland and the Middle East and back in the UK. And uh, through those experiences, I really uh, became aware firsthand of the impacts heavy industry is having on the planet. And I saw a lot of countries and I saw those impacts and uh, I decided I wanted to change direction. So in my early 30s, I, uh, I stepped away from that industry and I went to art school to study uh, art and design and then from there uh, to the Royal College of Art in London uh, where I started dealing more seriously with design for sustainability. Very interesting career path. We'll have to talk about that a little later, of course. And so we'll just jump right into the book. So the question I think we could start with is, you know, the book is very unique in its format. You and I discussed this, you know, there's 64 chapters and they all, a lot of them are kind of very unique uh, subject matter. However, you know, what is the overall theme of the book? And I mean, you had mentioned is what is the reason for this unique format and kind of this almost disparity between chapters, even though they all tie together? Yeah. Uh, well, as you say, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of different, uh, very varied chapters in the book. And uh, I wanted it to, I wanted to write the book in a way which I felt was in keeping with the subject it was about, which is design. The main theme of the book is design and spirituality. And uh, and both those aspects of ourselves, design, design, whether it's architectural design or product design 
or other forms of design and architectural design are imaginative processes. They use spontaneous methods as much as uh, rigorous systematic methods. Often serendipitous um, uh, processes occur in the process. Um, So being creative and imaginative, which spirituality also is, uh, it seemed like uh, a good way to try and develop a book on those themes in the same way I would go about designing uh, an object or something uh, where ideas, I've got a general idea, I will approach it in a rational, systematic manner, but I also have spontaneous thoughts, serendipitous occurrences, and they all contribute to, to parts of the design. And eventually, they all are put together to make up a whole, a whole design. And that's basically the way I put together the book. So there's, <clears throat> there's a whole variety of different parts, if you like, in the book. There's short essays, personal reflections, more systematic academic writing. There are there are photos um, which illustrate some of the concepts I'm talking about, and there's even some poetry. That's right. Uh, yeah, I can say I have not read an architecture book with a poem in it yet, so that's a first. <laughs> All right, great, thank you. And so, you know, kind of one of the overall themes that comes up a lot, and so that could be our, where we start with as well. You you bring up the fact that uh, you know we live in a very advanced time we use technology i'm quoting you that seems like it's right out of a science fiction book but there's there's enough data to show that the reality is is that happiness is actually in a decline particularly in affluent regions like you know united states and so this idea of spirituality and kind of i will say like inner transformational more i know it's important and so i'd love to hear you explain a little bit more i guess just the con- that concept, the idea that happiness is declining despite our improved quality of life. Yeah, well, all the evidence shows that, actually, um, which seems surprising, mm-hmm. but actually shouldn't be surprising, um, particularly if, if you're uh, aware of the major spiritual traditions in the world, not just the Christian tradition in, in Europe and, and much of America, but, but the, all the Abrahamic religions, the Eastern traditions, Taoism, Buddhism, and so on, <clears throat> they all have a fairly similar message about our, our uh, relationship to material things uh, and tell us that uh, wealth and riches and material things are not the path to happiness. In fact, they advocate quite the opposite. So I was thinking about those things, and being a designer, and main, and, and predominantly a, 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 my area is product design, uh, and and seeing all these uh, innovations and products that we are that come upon us, that are advertised to us, that we're sort of uh, we use in our everyday life, and uh, we're constantly being encouraged to buy more of, um, uh, and and designers di- design those products then there seemed to me to be a conflict between the way we live and and the the kind of messages that we get every day through advertising and marketing um, and those messages in those spiritual traditions. So one of the reasons I I wrote the book was to explore those connections and uh, and particularly uh, because of my research over many years in design for sustainability. And sustainability means not just 
environmental care and responsibility towards the natural environment, but the the more the more fulsome uh, understanding of of what sustainability means is things like social justice and social equity, uh, as well as environmental care. Uh, and really, that starts with us as individuals. That starts with our own values, what makes us tick, if you like. And uh, and the, the major spiritual traditions are about that, really. The major spiritual t- traditions teach us how we should live in the world and the kinds of values that enable us to live well in the world. So spiritual values, things like benevolence, uh, which is thinking about other people, uh, charity, <clears throat> environmental stewardship, um, all those things can affect the way we do our activities today and can inform the way we do acti- our activities today in terms of the, the products we produce, the products we use, and the nature of those products. And <clears throat> as you know, we live in a, in a highly competitive world of, uh, of production and innovation and growth. But that, that growth... And, and the reason why we're constantly pursuing innovation is is to enable growth. But unfortunately, most of the growth or much of the growth, uh, the economic growth in Western-style economies is based on consumption, individual levels of consumption. And those individual levels of consumption, whether they're products or whether they're services, they have an impact on the natural environment, they take the resources out of the ground. Which and when we when we mine resources, when we drill for resources, when we transport resources, we we impact the natural environment when we put pipelines through or when we put highways through, and uh, we drive away uh, the wildlife. We we trash habitats and that wildlife populations go down, and we are constantly eroding and reducing the amount of natural environment there is because we keep on building on it and tarmacking it over and, uh, and encroaching on it. And, and that ultimately affects our sense of well-being because there's a lot of evidence to show that Exposure to natural environments and being in nature is actually good for our own well-being. So we're actually hurting ourselves in the long term, you know. So, so all those things, those conflicts, started to resonate in my mind, and I thought, well, what if I try to explore some of those things uh, in a book through writing a book? Absolutely, and kind of to piggyback off that. You, you do have a chapter that talks about the fact that we use a lot of metrics that are not outdated, but just irrelevant. The one that speaks to me is you, you talked about the gross domestic product and how everyone uses that as a signal of economic strength, whereas you just said, everything we do is based on growth and consumption. And so while the GDP could be rising, a lot of social states could actually be declining. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, GDP goes up when there's a major environmental disaster, for example, because you spend money on it. So, so it's good for the economy. Uh, so that doesn't make any sense at all. So there are, there are other ways that we can measure uh, the, the, the state of countries. 
uh, and it could be, you know, based on education levels and uh, social services and uh, and the the uh, proximity of people to natural environments and and their availability to them. So there's all kinds of other ways that we can uh, measure our success as countries and as regions. Uh, the gross domestic product has been in play for a long time, but it's a very crude and and often self-defeating kind of metric as far as I, I'm not an economist, but these are the things which, uh, which, which seem to be the case. And so a number of countries have developed other kinds of measures uh, to look at this, including the United Nations, which has come up with other me- other kinds of measures. Absolutely, and so you, we maybe we can't go into all of them. You had listed a few that I was unaware of. The one that I think me and everyone else may have heard of is, you know, the happiness index, which I believe has a, a better term. But you have you have listed a few others, and so you also mentioned the same idea with intelligence that uh, standardized testing of of the IQ is kind of the same thing. Where there's other factors such as emotional and some other factors, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little mm-hmm. more. Well, you know, standard standard measures of of IQ are often about uh, answering kind of rationalistic questions, which 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 require certain kinds of answers. Um, and uh, there are lots of other ways of knowing, and lots of other ways of experiencing the world. Um, which designers are very, very aware of, but they're out, outside that kind of rational, systematic approach right. to our education system. So um, more intuitive, subjective ways of knowing. And, uh, and they're important, and they're critically important for creative disciplines like design. Um, but they're also important for areas such as spirituality, uh, which, uh, which are about human values, they're not about they're not about facts in the way that science uh, looks at the world in terms of facts about the the, uh, the, the physical state of the world and and the and <clears throat> natural phenomenon. Um, they're about human values and uh, and ethics and uh, what we value and why we value it and how we should live to live in a good way. Um, and uh, you know, philo- our philosophies and our spirituality are about those things. And design um, is really a, a combination of those more imaginative ways of knowing, and and obviously values-based ways of knowing, combined with uh, the kinds of more factual information that science can bring to the table. But I think what what we must be clear about as we develop products and as we develop innovations, we are, I mean, we might not be so aware of it, but we are making value judgments. When we take a a scientific discovery, a phenomenon about the natural world that that science uh, has has put on the table or, or, you know, discovered, and then we decide we can make use of that uh, for human purposes, perhaps for human benefits or for for, for other uh, reasons to, to make a lot of money, maybe. Um, then we have made a value judgment about it, about its value, and uh, we have we, we've combined 
if you like, facts and values into a new technological innovation. And there's values being uh, included in those developments, which we may or may not, not be not recognize. Uh, but that's the case. And so, and so we, we have to look at, okay, what are those values? What, what are those values that are driving those kinds of innovations? Um, and how do those values square with more traditional teachings about how we should live? You, and speaking of that, particularly science, you know, you had mentioned, you're, you're talking about the value-based decisions. You know, at one point, I think it's worth discussing, you talk about the fact that there is a, a big difference between the aims of science and technology, and it does get a little muddled. And I think the example you provide about the insecticides is a great story to hear more about. And so, you know, you, you mentioned the idea of science, the pursuit of knowledge, technology is the application of the knowledge. And that doesn't, at first, that doesn't seem like a huge difference, but then the story you provide kind of sheds a bigger light on that. Well, you know, what, what we are really good at, I think, in, in, our, in our education systems um, and our different departments and faculties in universities and so on, and our, and our departmentalized corporations and businesses, we're really good at, at going deep into particular areas and analyzing and and coming up with uh, you know good rational rationales for for doing things. We have a problem, we look for the solution, we've got we've got the fix for it, and then we roll it out. What we're not so good at doing is joining up the dots and looking beyond our area of specialization and seeing okay, what are the potential impacts of doing that beyond these short-term benefits of you know eliminating this particular insect or pest or whatever it is what what may be the knock-on effects be of that uh, in the short term in the long term and uh, you know i mean it was that kind of thing which actually began the modern environmental movement with silent spring by rachel carson back in the early 60s when she showed the relationships between uh, DDT, mm-hmm. uh, which was sprayed liberally everywhere to get rid of unwanted uh, pests, and uh, and then those dead pests were being with were the with a food supply for others, and then they were for the food supply for others, and you get this process of bioaccumulation mm-hmm. where these toxins build up, and eventually those those animals die, and uh, and and. So, and so, we 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 see that with with in all kinds of other places today, uh, not just with insecticides, insecticides, but with waste plastics which go into the sea and so on, and they get they get broken down into microplastics, and they they get eaten by small organisms, and then they get they get eaten by larger organisms, and so on. You get that you get that process of bioaccumulation, which is. Which is really uh, detrimental to other species, right? And eventually, I know eventually to us if we eat the fish, for example, you know. So there's there's these knock-on effects because we're not joining up the dots. We're not looking at the picture in a more holistic way, uh, in a more synthetical way, and seeing how do these things interrelate. And it, this is one of the the joys of trying to to look at it from a design perspective because design as a discipline, is less. It's not so much an analytic 
discipline, which goes into depth on any particular area. It's a more syn- what I call a synthetical discipline, which which takes information from many different areas and many different areas of expertise and brings them together to create some kind of holistic outcome, which which hopefully works on all the different levels. So it's so design is a is a really good way to try and uh, address these kinds of issues because it it naturally it's a discipline which naturally brings things together, brings people together, brings expertise together uh, to try and see how these things all work together. Uh, absolutely, I agree. And so you had mentioned kind of the role of design. And so one thing that maybe we would have talked about in the beginning, you know, the, the idea of spirituality is brought up in the book a lot. It's even in the title. You've mentioned it a few times. And you're, there is certainly religious imagery in the book and in your stories, for example. But I think what would be worth elaborating is I, I think your definition of spirituality is maybe a little different than what came to my mind at first and probably to some of our listeners' minds at first. You know, I know it sounds like very literal, like religious design, but at, at, at least from my opinion, the book doesn't exactly, it's not a design book on designing for religious structures. It's actually almost the furthest thing from that. Yeah. Well, you know, I take quite, a, quite an open attitude to uh, <clears throat> what, I've, what I've been trying to do is, is look at the, not one, I, I was brought up in the, in the, in the Christian religion, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I, I, in this book, I, I open it up to, uh, to consideration of, of other traditions and there's extracts and there's references in the book to the Tao Te Ching and mm-hmm. to Buddhism and to the Bhagavad Gita from Hinduism uh, and, and, and many other traditions because they, they, all, they all appear very different on the surface, I think, those traditions. But when you drill down to their, some of their essential teachings, they're remarkably similar. And the golden rule, for example, uh, you know, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is present in, in in virtually all the major spiritual traditions. That's uh, that's why it's called the golden rule, um, because it because it's it's a it's a fundamental precept about how we should live in the world. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? You know, and, and uh, in the Christian tradition, it's love your neighbor is another way of, of saying it. Although that that other way of saying it is, is there as well, and so. And so it's not uh, it's not strictly adhering to any one form of organized religion. It's looking at uh, spiritualities around the world, what they have in common, including uh, traditional knowledge and indigenous spiritualities, uh, because they offer they particularly uh, North American indigenous um, peoples have a very close relationship to the natural environment and the land. Uh, in their traditions, is sacred. And to violate that uh, is, is uh, sacrilegious. And and so there's there's a great... They, and they've been very close to the land until very recent times. And, uh, and there's a lot to learn from the way they created their, their material culture and, uh, and how those forms of material culture were in complete... Uh, synchronicity with the natural environment. They didn't violate the natural environment 
Um, they didn't pollute the natural environment, and uh, they were they were kind of moderate, resilient forms of material culture. And so there, there's a lot to learn from all these different wis- what wisdom traditions or spiritualities, whatever you'd like to call them, uh, from many many different cultures. And it's a it's a real rich uh, area to to be inspired by how how we can live today, how we can learn from those traditions in order to do things today, which are which are less polluting and less intrusive. Uh, and more considerate of the natural environment and of people. Great. And so speaking of tradition, you had mentioned, you know, you're talking, you, you, you mentioned North American indigenous. And so in the book, you do make the case that uh, with technology, we are more connected than ever, but that there is kind of an erosion of traditional knowledge and tradition itself. And I'd love to hear your take on that a little more. Yeah, well, we, we, we've been aware that the traditional approaches uh, are in decline all over the world, sadly, uh, before we've really um, understood what their contribution can be. I, I'm pleased to say that, uh, that, that uh, contemporary scientists are taking a far closer look at uh, traditional knowledge these days um, to, to get a better understanding of how they can learn about uh, in environmental science from that more holistic point of view, I was okay. I was I was talking about earlier because uh, indigenous ways of knowing are often much more holistic in their approach. They're not split up into little separate, you know, entities right. of knowledge. They're they're all put all put together, um, and so we, we've been doing some research uh, myself and, and a colleague at Manchester. Uh, Metropolitan University into uh, traditional material cultures and particularly traditional craft cultures in uh, in Britain in Cumbria just north of Lancaster here and in New Mexico in, in the United States in the Santa Fe area and north of Santa Fe and in China and uh, and we found uh, there's a, there's a great deal of knowledge and expertise. Uh, to learn from those traditional ways of doing, which are often in- incredibly resourceful, very imaginative, and deeply meaningful, and they build human skills and knowledge. And those skills and knowledge are passed down from one generation to another. Speaking, and, uh, and we've also we've uh, sorry we, we've we've also found that with the people we've interviewed. Uh, why they do what they do, their, their motivations and their values align very, very well often with spiritual the spiritual teachings and spiritual values. I, I, the people, the people we interviewed, they were less concerned with the kinds of things that we hear about so much in modern society: innovation, economic growth, wealth, wealth generation, all those things. While they were business people, and and they, those. Things were considerations for them. They weren't the driving forces of, of what they did. They were they were seen to be far more concerned with their community, with creating good work for people in the community, and contributing and giving back in some way to their community. And they're also usually very deeply environmental in their thinking. They use gentle processes, a lot of natural materials. 
and are concerned about doing things well, not just doing things quickly or efficiently. You know, efficiently, we don't, we're, we're very preoccupied with efficiency in modern society. Well, that's not necessarily a major concern uh, for, for a lot of craft makers. They don't want to necessarily do it efficiently. They want to do it well. They want to do it effectively and well. Um, and as I say, uh, some scientists are now paying far more attention to these traditions and this kinds of knowledge to inform their work in environmental science, which is, uh, which is very encouraging, I think. Absolutely. What I was going to say is, and you kind of already hit my next question, you know, uh, mass production is often touted as, you know, big innovation of our time. And you kind of had the argument that a lot more holistic communities actually don't mass produce and that there's actually benefits to not mass producing items. I think you've touched on most of that already. What I wanted to ask about is, you know, most of the book talks about design as a general form. However, occasionally your uh, product designer background kind of slips in. And so you have mentioned specifically the idea that products specifically, there's a bit of an unethical approach being taken. And, you know, you make the argument for less mass production, maintenance, repairing, upgrading, etc. And so I guess, I know for me, that's a very jarring thought at first. And I have to imagine for a lot of people, the idea of not mass producing goods, they'll all have the same thought. No one can afford it then. Whereas I thought you made a decent argument that it could work if we didn't mass produce our goods. And so I'd love to hear you prove that to those who were just as jarred as I was. Well, yeah, <laughs> I think you. I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you say we couldn't afford it, and that that is a very telling comment because if you say, "Well, I can't afford it," if we don't mass produce it, I can't afford it. Then you think, "Well, okay, if I can afford it, why is it so affordable?" And the, uh, and the reason the reason the object is designed as it is the the reason the object looks like it does and the reason the object is affordable is because the way it, of the way it's produced which is mass production mm. but the cost the retail price of that product does not reflect the cost of that product the true cost of that product right because it doesn't include the social cost of exploitative labor in developing countries somewhere that with which are paid poor wages, uh, which has lot, led to a, a lot of suicides and, and very uh, awful conditions for a lot of people. So we can enjoy affordable products in our country. So that's part of their affordability is that exploitative, those exploitative practices. If they aren't exploitative practices like that, then they might be robotic practices, which is putting people out of work, uh, and or people are reduced to sort of uh, very repetitive forms of work, and all the skilled work is done by the robots, uh, which is not good work for people, and also takes a lot of energy and so on. Uh, uh, so it increases energy use. And it also doesn't include the costs to the natural environment of uh, taking those resources out of the ground, the decline in natural places. It doesn't include the particulates being emitted into the air, the energy being used. It doesn't include the transport, uh, 
uh, and the, the highways and the uh, the pollution caused by that. It doesn't include the dealing with the packaging uh, and the disposal of that packaging. And of course, when those when those products are made cheaply on the other side of the world somewhere and and are imported to our countries in a one-way distribution system. And many of these digital products we use last maybe three, four, five years, and then we replace them with updated models. And then those disposed of models, they go somewhere. Those old products go somewhere. And and they often go to landfill. or they're incinerated, which creates more problems. And uh, and so n- none of those costs are taken into account, which allows those products to be as affordable as they are. Mm-hmm. So they're not, they're not, uh, the, the, those retail prices do not reflect their true costs. Now, when that system is expanded globally, as it is, as it is now is, and when the goal is growth, so it's doing more of that more quickly all the time, then we then we have got a recipe for eventual disaster because <clears throat> because what that means is that we start designing products with built-in obsolescence, which has been around for quite a while, uh, so that we deliberately design them to fail after a certain point in time so that we have to replace them. So we are deliberately creating trash. And all that energy, all those materials, all that shipping, all that packaging is for nothing because we're soon going to be trashing it and throwing it away, getting a new one. And so you can see when that's a growth curve, an exponential growth curve going up on a finite planet, that can only go on for so long before we start hitting something which is saying, actually, maybe we need to rethink this. And I think we're at that point now. Um, and we've been at that point for some decades, actually. Um, so we have to start doing something about that. And one way to do that would be to think about different ways of producing our products, and uh, and thinking about how we can we can have we can have uh, um, you know an economic uh, economic viability for businesses without producing and selling more products. And there are other models for uh, producing some products, yes, but long-lasting products, well-made products, uh, easily maintainable and repairable products. And there are economic models, which is a product service model, where instead of the more money you make is based on the more products you sell, you can have an economic model is the more money you make, the, the fewer products you sell and your, you make your ongoing money through service and repair and, and upgrade and so on over time. But you're not constantly dependent on selling more and more products. And a number of companies have gone that route. Interface, the, uh, which is a US-based but now international company of office flooring, they completely mm-hmm. changed their their model a few years ago under Ray Anderson, the CEO, uh, to a more environmental model. And it went from a, a car, basically a carpet selling uh, um, business to a product service business that now offers uh, a service of, of immaculate office flooring. And, uh, and they maintain that over time. 
And there's there's a number of other companies that have, that have done that in the past and and are doing it now. Uh, companies like Xerox, for example, they if they produce a they're not you don't have them so often now, but it, but Xerox photocopiers in offices, if if it's a, a product service model, they put the model into the into the business. And maintain it so every time they have to call out a service engineer, it costs them money. If the if the product is long lasting, low maintenance, really reliable, they get the same service fee whether they're maintaining it or not. So there are other kinds of mo- uh, economic models we can look at where there's far less throughput and much more uh, resilient products, long lasting products, repairable products, easily maintainable products. We need to give those kinds of solutions a lot more consideration these days, I think. Very compelling argument. I, I think that's a great explanation of what I was asking. And in fact, it kind of perfect segue into kind of one of our last points. You had mentioned, you know, the economy needs to change. And you specifically mentioned that there has been a recent event that has forced us to reexamine some of our economic elements, specifically being the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. One example you give is, you know, the supply chain is always producing just enough. And now we've seen that when that gets interrupted, everything goes to hell, for lack of a better term. And so what I wanted to ask, however, is I often ask, you know, what has what has everyone been up to since the book came out? You say in the book that you were six weeks into the pandemic while writing it and that you'd be curious to see, I guess, how things shake out in the future. And so, you know, roughly 48 weeks have happened since then, the pandemic. You know, you, you make the case that it, the COVID kind of proved that we're not as happy and spiritual with all our technology. And so with this extra year since you've written the book, do you feel that that's been validated? Do you feel differently? <coughs> well, I think it I think it has in many ways. I mean, I think it's shown the some of the advantages of of uh, technology, not least communication. Uh which has enabled us to keep our, our our businesses going, our teaching going at university. I've been doing all my teaching online this year, and uh, it's allowing us to have this conversation. So there are many benefits of of being able to communicate globally with others with similar views, with different views, and to uh, and to understand ourselves better. But I think what the pandemic has shown, particularly when we've been under such long periods of lockdown, uh, that there's more to life than communicating via technology. And there's more to life than, you know, watching movies at home, Uh, that we need um, people and that community and proximity to people and community and seeing people and seeing uh, loved ones and neighbors is important to us. I think we felt it more than perhaps we ever felt it before during this pandemic because we haven't had it. We haven't been able to have it for for uh, health reasons. So I think the the pros and the cons have been exposed a bit, and I hope we will reflect on them and, and think about how we can do things uh, better in the future I hope we don't just slip back into the same ways we were doing it before as soon as possible and start um, and, and just sort of go back to normal because that normal that we had was actually an aberration in human history and and not an, a completely unsustainable one at that. 
So I think as we move forward, we need to think a lot more about making the most of our local resources, our local assets, and create more local inclusive forms of employment, reduce our needs for transportation. Uh, and so we'd also be reducing our, our, our pollution and air pollution, particularly through air travel and things like that. And and, and finding uh, and, and finding new ways of, of engaging at the local level. Um, and if we reduce those things, reduce all those transportation of goods, all those transportation of very short-lived goods, and rely more, more on, on locally produced things, uh, it helps reduce public expenditure in areas such as waste disposal and cleanup, which inevitably uh, the taxpayer has to pay for. And, and it also helps foster all kinds of community-led solutions. And when, when you have that, you start to have a, a much more diversified economy. And because it's much more diversified, it's also much more robust and resilient and it's also much more interesting, but that then, because it's it's more localized, um, you can also start feeling a sense of uh, cultural distinctiveness and place-based context-based distinctiveness, um, and that helps build a sense of community identity and pride in community, and uh, and a sense of who you are, which helps you, which helps feed your sense of of well-being. As, as you, you feel you're, uh, you, belong, you have a sense of belonging. And I think we've missed that. I think we've certainly missed that during the pandemic. I would agree. And so I wanted to thank you for speaking with me today. I know we've only scratched the surface, but I hate to keep you here all day. So It's been a pleasure. Thank to, you. To uh, everyone listening, the book is Design and Spirituality of Philosophy and Material Cultures. Uh, Stuart, thank you again for meeting with me. My pleasure. Thank you. To everyone listening, thank you and have a great day.